Everybody, we are back. Welcome to another episode of More Than the Title. I'm your host, Jared Thomas, Chief Revenue Officer at Outside the Box Digital. And I'm also host, joined by my co-host, Chatty O, a.k.a. Pastel Chatty, a.k.a. your favorite CEO's favorite CEO. What's if going on, broski? If it ain't bright, it ain't right. <laughs> if it ain't bright, it ain't right. Black is so boring. <laughs> I, I, I got the black hoodie on. I know. <laughs> I'm bringing color to this thing right here. <laughs> Gotta liven up the show. <laughs> yeah, my boy ready to pop. My boy I'm ready party, to party, y'all. I'm ready to party. I'm ready to party. <laughs> but you already know, before we begin, y'all, let's give a quick shout out to our partners at their live podcast network. Make sure you download the app to enjoy content like more than the title and other great, amazing podcasts. Also, shout out to our returning listeners, the subscribers. We're growing and glowing because of y'all, man. We appreciate all the support. All the first-time listeners, what's good, y'all? If you're not familiar with it, this is more than a title. All about having authentic conversations with some of the best and brightest in the business. Understand who they are and how they got there and understand, understand more about the person. And today we got my guy on, man. This wait, is wait, wait, wait. You, you keep forgetting the word exclusive. We're brought ah. to you exclusive. You keep forgetting the exclusive, like we menage twice and with other other networks and all that. We exclusive from platform. alive. We on all platforms only from alive. You got to got to throw in the exclusive. We're not First sharing. Black you, owned, black that's, owned podcast. You understand? Network. We, we, we got to put some respect on the name. Look <laughs> out to the partners. But you already know, y'all, man. But today, yo, like I said, we got a we got a special guest, man. This is the brother I've been I known him since the beginning of the LinkedIn journey days. He's a multimedia brand focused on financial and personal empowerment, specifically for people that look like him, that are black and brown people. He's worked across a broad spectrum of audience, from individuals to large companies, and bringing his message into practice. Right, his personal finance story started in New York, growing up experience of aspects of poverty. After relocating, started his career in the banking industry. He was exposed to concept tools and strategies that not only improved his understanding of money, but his relationship with it. But he's also an author, a public speaker, certified financial education instructor, financial coach with a decade of banking experience at various levels and also featured on publications like Black Enterprise, Yahoo Finance, Business Insider, Forbes and many others. So let's introduce my guy, our special guest today, Rakim Sabri. What's going on, bro? What's going on? I appreciate the, the huge, huge, huge intro. Yes, sir, bro. We got we got to give you your flowers, baby. You got to give you your flowers, man, because especially especially on this topic, right? You know what I mean? For financial empowerment, we know how it affects us in the hood and us in the, in, in the community, right? And I just want to start off. Let's start from the beginning, bro. So you started from New York, man. Where in New York did you grow up from? Tell us a little bit about your background and your upbringing in the city, bro. Yeah, I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. That's in Westchester County, uh, four square miles. And... Uh, happy upbringing right i didn't i didn't realize that we were necessarily poor um but my parents separated probably my early mid-teens and uh, i had to kind of like step up right and be the man of the house and so i became very conscious of the household finances uh up to and including carrying the food stamps card budgeting out what that um monthly allotment looked like um, mm. doing the grocery shopping doing the laundry like i helped out my mom quite a bit and um, and in that process, that's when I kind of started to realize, like, or, or not realize, but accept that that was kind of that's the way that life was. Yeah. And in that started to build from myself a vision of what the future was going to look like that included 
getting an apartment, being on Section 8, and having food stamps. So when I talk about the, uh, the mindset shift and the relationship with money, I talk about that story very intimately because I went from living in an apartment and aspiring to essentially go out and do the same things that my mom had to do in order to survive to um, becoming a homeowner um, of a multifamily home where, you know, I could generate income and um, doing that before 30. So I bought a duplex at 26 years old. Mm. And um, it's all of that, you know, certainly there's the math behind it, right? How much money do you need to save for down payment? What do you need your credit score to be, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the accomplishment, the testimony to that accomplishment is really changing the relationship that I have with money. Yeah. Curious too, bro. Are you the first homeowner in your family? Um, I'm not the first homeowner in my family. I am the first that um, that I collect touch right in my immediate family. So mm-hmm. I did not have any kind of um, blueprint or path to what that looked like. Um, but I will say, um, as a follow up to that question, that I have inspired other homeowners in my family through the purchase of my home. That's dope. That's dope. I like that, but I but but we passed something, and I can't let you got I can't let you get past it, right? So you said carrying the food stamp card. Listen, I'm an '80s baby, but when we had food stamps, they wasn't cards. <laughs> they wasn't cards, baby. You had to walk in the store with the booklet, okay? The food stamp booklet, and each one was a different color. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You had to rip them out. You had to rip them out like loose leaf paper. <laughs> <laughs> you had to, days. You had to, you know, there was nasty days, man. And the booklets came in different colors, right? So like the 20s came in one booklet and the fives came in another booklet. And it's in, um, now I say that to say like, um, it just goes to show you, right? Um, so, you know, me telling you that means that obviously I'm a little older than you. And I grew up in the Bronx. We're from the Bronx. But it's yeah. the same story generationally still still going on, passed down, right? So, I, I you know, we grew up. Not not wealthy at all. Public assistance is what they call it, right? Food stamps and things of that nature. And you're telling the yeah. same story, just a different um, mechanic to, to to give you the same thing, right? So you have food stamps on the car. We have food stamps in the booklet. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's the same story starting out to say that, you know, you started out in poverty and you've you've made a way for yourself. So, you know, congratulations yeah. to that. Congratulations to you for that, man. That, that's, a, that's big. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely, bro. But what and what was the see one thing that I think I think it's important for us to touch on, right? Because I know Chad's a homeowner yourself is a homeowner yep. as well, right? And it's we don't get that information. So what was that one thing, right, that really stood out for you besides you know us growing up in a similar situation? What you think differentiated your mindset, right, and made you want to change versus other people that's in our community? Uh, so I talk about this framework, right? The three E's exposure, education, execution. And it was literally that, right? The exposure to somebody who, I mean, was within five years of my age who owned a home and was talking about buying another one. So I'm like, wait a second, this is something that is possible. Um, something that's possible for somebody under 30. How do I bring that reality into, into my own? And so I think sometimes, and I don't want to oversimplify, you know, getting out of the struggle, right? Because there's a process. Um, And I think, you know, certainly there were aspects of me being in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people. But um, just simply acknowledging that something is possible by seeing somebody else do it is huge. And being able to start trying to change your mindset around what the acquisition of that goal might be. Um, And so that that was 
the big thing for me, talking to somebody who owned a multifamily property and, you know, about their process, collect them rent, the, the headaches that they had and, um, you know, going through the whole the whole thing. And, and this person and, and there was a community of people, but this person specifically pointed me to professionals who could help me, whether that be a realtor, whether that be a lender, whether that be, um, you know, an inspector walk through the inspection with me. And so as I'm going through all of these things by myself for the first time, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know you know, what to look for, what questions to ask. Uh, the, when I started working with the realtor, he's like, well, you know, what is the criteria that you have? Do you want a driveway? Do you want a garage? Do you want a fence? Do you want a backyard? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you want heat? Um, then of course you want heat. Do you want gas? Do you want oil? Um, one at all, baby. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sitting there like, I, I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions, and so having somebody who could kind of like walk through that process with you, mentor you, um, in a way, um, tell you what it is that they did, what it is that they did that maybe they didn't like the outcome of, kind of walking through their mistakes as well, was huge in being able to help me decide for myself, like, what is this path going to look like? I wanna, I wanna chime in for a second. Um. I want to again rewind it a little a little back because you said you bought your house at 26, right? What's the relationship between the person that you asked for help and yourself? Are you guys family or is this somebody just like a friend or something? Because this is important to segue into what I want to say. Yeah, no, good question. So this uh, this person was a friend was actually my manager. So I started working in banking in 2011. Okay, uh, she was my manager, and we became friends. And um, as you know, we would spend. 40 hours together a week, we would have conversations about different things and, and money was certainly one of those things. Okay. And I, I really like this question because um, I think it's important to note that she was a Caucasian woman right. and um, growing up in Mount Vernon, we didn't talk about money openly, right? You so go. you have conversations about, you know, what is your credit score or what is the credit limit on your credit card or how you're investing in your 401k and yeah. whether or not you're investing at all. Like I was just like, why is she telling me all of her business was my first reaction. Mm. But um, on the other side of this, I realized that it was important and necessary to have these transparent conversations about what salary look like, what the contributions look like, what the credit card limits look like so that I can ask for more because a lot of people don't know that you can ask for a higher credit limit. A lot of people don't know that, you know, you can ask for fees back. Um, and so it's, it's, a lot of the ignorance that kind of keeps us in these cycles because either we feel ashamed or we feel afraid or we just don't know um, what are kind of these keys to, to building a strong financial picture um, in terms mm -hmm. of like technical details. But then outside of that, you know, exploring the relationship with money from a perspective of not having to experience survival, you know, that's a, that's a completely different arena. And so, um, yeah, I had a, a, another person who I worked with ask me one day was like, you know, what does it feel like to be poor? And I'm like, wow, we can't rush through that, right? You got to have some balls to come up to. I, I got to ask, like, who, you know, what was this person? Because, you know, somebody else coming up to you like, Yo, how you feel to be poor? That's kind of a crazy question to ask. What's wrong with this guy? Am I kidding me or what? Right. That's the only thing to come to your mind. Right, you understand, like, you might get punched in the face for asking something like that for the wrong, but you just come up to me and ask me, like, am I, like, you know what I mean? That's crazy. That's yeah, no, I think I, I, I have to kind of set the stage there. So I was talking with um, somebody else who had, you know, experiences with poverty, and we were kind of joking about 
um, struggle meals at the time. So we're talking about like, you know, the peanut butter and syrup sandwiches or frying bologna and, you know, making, making sandwiches out of the fried bologna. And um, as we're talking about like these struggle meals, this individual is just kind of in the background and they're like, can't relate. Right. And so that's where the question was then asked. It didn't, it didn't just come like I'm walking up to you like, hey, what does it feel like to be poor? But it was because they overheard me having a conversation about some of those challenges and what that looked like and then wanted to kind of inquire more into it. And um, and, and it does take you off guard, even if even if the stage is set where we're having this conversation, because you don't ever really sit and reflect on what does it feel like to be poor? I think, and I opened up by saying this, right? You don't realize that you're poor in those moments, right? You just, you realize that, you know, maybe you don't have as much as other people, but this is normal for you. And so uh, I think the difference between going from a place of wealth or of, you know, abundance into a place of, of um, poverty and, or scarcity is a huge, like, it, it's almost a culture, it's almost equally a culture shock. For somebody who's poor to look at somebody who has not had to struggle um, for the reverse to occur. That's real, man. I, I also want to I think I want to go into the, to the flip side of that, too, brother. Right. So we've grown up in a way and you know, we've had challenges, disadvantages and whatnot. Right. What is the biggest biggest advice you would say to somebody that actually runs into the bag? Right. Because that's also a big thing for our athletes, our rappers. Right. Maintaining the money, getting the money is one thing, but actually maintaining it and doing right things to it to make sure that you you can, you know, capitalize more on your on your investments or whatever you're trying to do. So what advice would you give to other young brothers and sisters that that are about to get into a bag that came from the struggle? Yeah, I love this question because, um, well, I'll answer the question first and I'll tell you why I love it. Uh, the the biggest piece of advice that I would give is that um, more money does not solve issues of scarcity, issues of um, financial trauma. Um, in some cases, it will magnify them. And so we look at what's happening in the media. And I'll point to two really prominent examples um, recently, right? We look at what's happening with John Morant and in, uh, in the NBA, right? And, you know, how he can't seem to stay out of trouble. Um, there's a lot of conversation around like, you know, this guy's a $200 million contract and he's getting ready to mess up the bag, but we're not looking at, you know, what's the why behind it. And and I don't think it's for me or anybody else to kind of like diagnose what his issues are. But I think that people are making associations based off of his behavior and his character with the money that he um, is making or has the potential to make. And those associations are not necessarily interconnected. Um, the other example, and I just published an article this morning for Forbes about it, was um, Gabrielle Union. She recently went viral um, because 50, she, 50, she 50, talked 50 about the 50-50. Yeah, yep. I read that, the 50-50. Yeah, I read that. And, um, and so I go into kind of talking about, because, you know, you, you get the clip that only shows you a small part of the conversation. So I went back and I actually watched the interview. And um, she's talking about having to support households outside of her own, right? So um, her and D-Wade have other households that they're supporting financially. And then they have their own household that they have to support financially. She's talking about um, how she still struggles, even in the millions of dollars, with scarcity and anxiety around money. And so I think there are a lot of people who, who don't have the money who are like, well, if I had that money, I wouldn't have that problem. 
but you know your your psychology around money doesn't change just because you have more money and so yes you might have the potential to spend more you might have the potential to support more people but if you're not getting right you know within and understanding how to change your relationship with money um, particularly from a place of scarcity that says i need to have it all or um i need to get rid of it all because i think uh, i know that that that's a reality too sometimes people are just so uncomfortable with having so access to money that they they're in a rush to spend it or to give it away or to support somebody else without establishing boundaries for themselves but boundaries um with others those things will eat into what your income looks like. And so you have a situation where today, uh, especially, you know, in, in the wake of everything that's happened since the pandemic and, you know, all of the layoffs and et cetera, et cetera, you have people who are making six figures living paycheck to paycheck. And somebody who's never experienced that or somebody who's experienced half of that will say, well, man, if I had another you know, $50,000, if I was making a hundred thousand plus a year, I wouldn't have those issues. But again, it's the, the psychology behind what your relationship with money is not, is often not being addressed in those instances. And so that you can, it doesn't matter how much money you make, you find a way to spend that money or you will find, find a way to, um, to go through it a lot faster. Um, just because maybe you, your lifestyle expenses grow with that money, or, yep. you know, like I said, you're, you're supporting other people. More money, more problems. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you touched on something very important, right? The psychology of how to spend money. And I have this conversation with people so many times that, that I'm, I'm almost blue in the face, right? I'm going to ask you this question, right? Because this is very important to understand the foundation of where this comes from, right? When you're, when you're growing up in poverty, it's your normalcy. You don't know you're poor because everybody around you is poor. They live the same exact life. So technically, unless you venture out of your hood, and I mean far, right? Because we know uh, Mount Vernon, Yonkers and all that, a lot of that area is poverty for miles and miles and miles, right? You go to school two, three blocks away, your middle school, your high school five minutes away, you don't travel out. So now, you said you bought the house at, at 26, right? You got into banking, but watch this now. Here's, here, here's how this goes. You went to a public school for elementary? Okay. You went to a public school for middle school? Yep. You went to a public school for high school? Yep. Okay. Now, but uh, what college did you go to? Uh, I actually didn't finish college. Okay, so great. Started... That, that's even better. Wait, that's even better. Because <laughs> that, that's a great baseline to say you bought a house, you were in banking and bought a house at 26, but I'm going to ask you now, when was the first financial literacy um, when did somebody teach you financial literacy for the first time? When did you ever take a class on financial literacy? When did somebody sit you down and say, do you even understand what credit is? Do you even understand how to start credit? Do you even understand the bounce of a dollar? Do you understand inflation? Because I know, because we, we're a product of public schools that they do not teach this in public schools, right? The first time I learned financial literacy, I was already a business owner. I was already successful and I went back to college and it was a part of my business degree that I had to take accounting and things of that nature. And then they start teaching it to you. But the first yeah. thing they did when I walked in the door was offer me a credit card, right? Yeah. So that's one of the first things they offer students right out the door. They know students come in broke, right? Because most college kids is broke, right? They know you're coming in broke and they offer you that platinum card or whatever card. They know you're going to go in debt because you're going to buy pizza and a bunch of stupid things. So th this is crazy because I'm going to backtrack it one more. You get your working papers at 14, 
14. So the government is saying that you are legally now allowed to join the workforce where you're not child labor, right? Some of you've programmed, right? You're allowed to get paid. Back in the day, we got paid with checks, right? But I'm at 14. That's the ninth grade. But you haven't taught me about money yet. So what you're saying is I'm legally now able to go get money. Legally, you're going to take money from me in taxes. And, and now I can start claiming taxes on my own or whatever the case may be. But yeah. you've never taught me how to spend this money or save right. this money. So right. look, look, at the, look at the institution of how you're setting me up to fail right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? So when, when was the first time that, some, that you actually started to learn financial literacy? Because it has to be a first that sets this train in motion. Yeah, you said so much. Um, so the answer to your question is definitely 21 when I started working in banking. Um, and, was an and adult the, already. The, the funny crazy. thing about funny yeah. thing about how you um, how you shared that is um, working for the bank. I got the bank products for free, right? So checking account free, I don't have to worry about a balance, saving yeah. account, same deal. But also, it's easier for me to get a credit card. And so we're, we're sitting down, and you know they they give me the the suite of products, right? The checking account, the savings account, the credit card. When I apply for the credit card, I'm like, I'm not going to get it because I've applied for credit cards previously and um, and I've never gotten it. But this time I got it. And then I receive a letter in the mail telling me, OK, here you have your credit card. This is what your credit score is. This is these are the factors that influence our decision to only give you this much. So I think it was like five hundred dollar limit. And those factors included student loans that I had not paid. So I had two student loans that were delinquent for 120 days and they and those remarks stayed on my credit report for um i believe seven years seven to ten years and um that had an impact on my ability to build credit and so i had to learn like how to work around those those delinquent marks and um and like you said those are not things that you're taught i mean when i'm signing the papers to go to school and take out the loans of course you know they make you read through all the stuff that you don't really read through you click to the bottom and you sign um, but I didn't realize that I had to pay or that I necessarily had to pay in that moment. So 21 was the first time that I started to get the crash course just by being in the industry, having to sell the products to customers, having taken out the products myself. But you said something that I wanted to kind of like spend some time on. You talked about, um, the working papers and you talked about saving. So growing up, uh, my family, so my parents, my grandparents, um, extended family, would always talk about save, 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 right? They would always emphasize this value of saving. The issue with that approach, particularly with young people, is that we're never taught what to save for, right? And so I developed the discipline to save. I still have the discipline to save, right? Um, but it was, am I saving to buy a pair of sneakers? Am I saving to buy a new TV? Am I saving to go on vacation? And so you save and you get up, you know, especially at, you know, 14, 15, $1,000 is a lot of money. $200 is a lot of money. You save and you get up to this milestone, whatever it is that you determine that milestone to be. And then you go and you spend it. And now you're starting back at zero. And so we're not taught to save for the long term. We're not taught to save um, with the intentions of investing later. And we certainly can't be taught to save for an emergency in a situation where you're experiencing poverty because everything is an emergency, right? And so, um, you know, I have a lot of conversations about financial education um, and the way that it's delivered, particularly to young people, particularly to black people. 
And, um, and my recent stance on financial literacy, as it's become a buzz phrase across, you know, the different industries is that financial literacy is not enough. Um, there needs to be more behind that. And so that's why I focus on, and, and you, you know, you introduced it when you introduced me, financial empowerment and, um, and more specifically financial trauma as a barrier to feeling financially empowered. Because a lot of us experience that financial trauma through our early experiences with money, whether it be through observation or, you know, a direct experience. And that trauma follows us, regardless of what our income is, regardless of, you know, what what job we have, the title that we carry, the things that we buy. And so helping people to identify and overcome that trauma is really where kind of my zone of genius is today. And so there are a lot of people who don't know about um, financial therapy or that there are financial therapists out there or that there are financial counselors out yeah. there who can help you improve your relationship with money beyond the math. Because there are a lot of poor people who know how to budget. You have to know how to budget, right? You have to figure yeah. out how to, how to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul, right? Um, and so you develop those skill sets, but that doesn't take you out of that place of poverty. And when people are, you know, we look at it from even a scientific perspective, when people are experiencing survival and um, their brain is perceiving this threat, um, they're not operating from their most rational mind, which is mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex, right? They're operating from their primitive mind that tells you fight or flight. And so because you're not operating from your most rational mind, you do irrational things like, well, I'm going to go buy me a nice pair of sneakers because this makes me feel good in the moment. And I'll worry about the other stuff tomorrow or next yeah. week or the week after that. And so when we make judgments about how people spend their money um, or how people are not saving or not investing, we have to take into account what are the circumstances that shape their choices? Because some people will make those decisions fully aware of what they should be doing um, and will have guilt, will carry guilt or shame or fear around the choices that they made. But they are, in a way, kind of self-medicating so that they can get through to the next day. Yeah, that's real, bro. That's but there, there, there's a, a lot that you said, the financial trauma. That's what sticks out to me, bro. But the thing with us being in the hood and living these situations, like us being in the war, this is how we've lived. We don't know that it's war. We don't know that it's traumatic, right? We don't know that. So could you explain to us what does financial trauma mean and how were you able to shift your mindset? Like what was a financial traumatic situation for you and how did you shift your mindset to get out of that? Yeah, so financial trauma is any instance observed or experienced that has a negative impact on the way that you view, interact with, or believe about money. And so mm -hmm. that exists on a spectrum, right? Um, it could be me walking out of my apartment building and going to college and one of my neighbors is like, don't ever get a credit card. Credit cards ruin my life, right? And so now that conversation is instilling fear, right? Because I'm like, well, damn, I don't want to have my life ruined, so I'm not going to get a credit card. Right. Um, or it could be a situation where, you know, I witness a repossession occur or an attempted repossession occur. Uh, I don't tell this story often, but um, my parents bought a huge TV. It was a projector style TV from Renner Center uh, back, you know, back when I was living in Mount Vernon and stop making payments on it. So the Renner Center employees would come knock on the door, like, 
I know you're in there like trying to get the TV back. And so we would learn like not to go to the door, not to answer the door, not even to make a move within the house to just kind of pretend that there's nothing happening inside of the house. Um, and I think witnessing an experience like that certainly contributes to financial trauma. But as an adult, if you've experienced job loss, if you've experienced um, long term unemployment, layoffs, um, being fired, uh, repossess, I mean, anything, homelessness, bankruptcy, all of those things can contribute to financial trauma. And what's really interesting about the, the way that I position myself in this niche is that I talk about financial trauma and financial empowerment for Black people specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so I say for people who look like me, because um, our relationship with money in this country is unique in that, um, I mean, how, how deep do you guys want to go? Black people were all the, the way first. down the rabbit hole. Take us down the rabbit let's hole. Let's go. Take and us before, down the rabbit before, hole. And before you start, and pause. We got to throw a pause in there. Yeah, how deep you want to go? Boy. Yeah, yeah. Pause. Hold on, hold on. Rakim, we cool, but you, yo, hey, got to throw a major pause in there. How deep do you want to go? Got to get a major no. pause, though. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> But you said yeah. something about the Renner yeah. Center, and that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, this corporation created a whole business model off the way that we think and the way we deal with financial trauma. There is no Renner Center in Rockland County, there's no Renner Center in Beverly Hills and all these other places, right? So I want people to listen and that's listening to hear that shit. They already know how we're gonna act. We're trained and conditioned that way. There are no Renner Centers in outside hoods, but in our hood. But but hold on, uh, I gotta play devil's advocate, right? What's up? I gotta play devil's advocate. Please right? do, please do, baby. When we talk when we talk about financial trauma, right? And we talking about savings, right? What are you saving for, right? So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of of a story of my life, right? When when I was growing up, we we hustled, right? I we hustled everything, just everything. I was the newspaper boy. Uh, we you know what I mean? Can't we That's hustled right. everything, right? But my hustle wasn't really for me to buy expensive things. My hustle primarily was for us to eat. Like, let's be clear. Like, the lifestyle that I lived, when me and my cousin used to hit them streets, and I'm talking like eight, nine, ten years old, if we didn't bring back enough money to that household, we wasn't eating that night. We wasn't eating that night. So when we talk about trauma, we got we to gotta look at the whole lifestyle that you're living in general and say, I don't care about no goddamn sneakers. I don't, I don't care about no shiny shit. And we wasn't eating nothing fancy. We talking spam sandwiches. You know the spam. You know the spam sandwiches. Right. You know spam sandwiches and oodles and noodles. We're, we're talking very cheap, ninety-nine cent food. But we had to go get that money to eat. You understand? So when you got to do that day in and day out just to feed yourself, you're not thinking about saving. Saving for what? Because I might not even survive till tomorrow. So that possibility right. of me buying Jordans or that possibility, I'm gonna reject any. Even if you was the if. Let's say Rakim, you was my father, and you came to me when I was young, Chatty, and you like, yo, we can't be doing that. We got to save. I'm going to look at you like you're stupid. I'm going to reject everything that you're saying because my priority is survival. Survival. Yeah. And, and the problem is when, when, when people grow up in, in the impoverished ways that we're growing up, you're, you're in so much debt and you're, in, you're living so much of a low life that that's the problem. You develop this wall where you can't even... Think about thinking about anything past today. Tomorrow doesn't exist. If I don't get past today, tomorrow doesn't exist. It but, just but doesn't exist. But there's levels though to what you're saying, right? So you start up like you're going to survival. There's a point yeah. where you left that survival mode, right? right? And now when you got the money, what you were thinking? 
I got to go get the Jordans. I got to stay flea. I got to do this. Nah, now I'm gonna, you nah, nah, I'm being honest bro. with you. Once, once we got to, once we got to a level, once we got to a level um, where we started eating and I'm, I'm transparent. I don't mind. Yeah. Once we got to a level where we started eating, I just was like, can we get our own apartment? Cause it was 10 of us in a two bedroom. I'm just being honest. Like it was 10 of us in a two bedroom. Two people had the bedrooms and the rest of us was in the living room. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you know what type of house that is. It's not the good house. You understand what I'm saying? You know what type of house that is. So we wasn't, again, we wasn't thinking about sneakers at that point. We was just thinking about, can we just get a place to live that we can call home and we could be safe? You know, so it's, it's, it, when you say it's levels, there's a lot yeah. of levels to this shit. A it's a lot of there. levels to yeah, this shit, man. Before you can even think about anything that you would consider as flashy or, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, boost your ego and things of that nature. Survival takes so long so long to get out of that most people never get out of that zone. So that's why when I get a couple dollars, if, I, if I'm living in, in, in the house that we, you know, that kind of house for 10 years straight and I, I can't see us getting out, we're not getting out no time soon. Yes, the first time I get a couple dollars, I'm going to want a clean pair of sneakers. You understand? Or a clean shirt or maybe a nice outfit because I ain't had it in so long that I need something, something to hold on to to give exactly. me some type of motivation to move forward. Message. That's facts. Yeah. <clears throat> That's all facts. Damn, we went down the ride. That was a real one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I, think, I think that that was important to share, too, because the public perception of, of what that spectrum of survival looks like um, can be limited to, oh, you know, they decided to buy the new TV or the new PlayStation or the new pair of sneakers and not realizing that um, some struggle is daily right and um and fortunately that was not my struggle right i don't want to misrepresent that um my parents would be furious if i did um but you know to your point there's levels to that right so even if the struggle is not that okay i don't know what tomorrow is going to look like i don't know if i'm going to live to tomorrow but it's slightly better in that okay i know that i'm going to live to tomorrow we don't have hot water right now but we know that the hot water is going to come back on we don't have um, lights right now, but we know the lights are going to come on. And so we know how to how to navigate that environment by lighting candles, by boiling a pot of water, by, you know, doing what you got to do in that moment. Um, there was never a time that I did not think that I was going to survive to the age that I am now. And that is a huge improvement from my dad's generation. My dad had told, sat me down every birthday up until the time I turned 18 and told me that, you know, there was times where he didn't think that he was going to make I'm sorry, 19 to the time I was 30, that he didn't think that he was going to make it to 30. Um, I was born, my dad was 17 years old. And so um, he's like, you broke a generational curse. And every time he hears me say that, he's like, I, you know, it just fills me with so much joy to know that that wasn't a thought that you had because it was such a persistent thought that I had. And so um, you, you guys touched on it earlier, like that generational trauma is um, a very large part of what the financial trauma shows up through, um, or rather the vein that the financial trauma shows up through. And what I um, had started to say was that the relationship between um, Black people in this country and money is um, so complex for a lot of reasons, but I like to point out the fact that um, our early history in this country uh, for many of us anyway, was that we were the original currency. And so now you look at 
um, the history of slavery as an institution in um, the role and the role that is played in generating great wealth for a lot of the organizations that still exist today. Um, and for a lot of the, um, the descendants of white people who owned slaves back then, and you look at um, this narrative that is that's being put out in, in um, you know the media around oh well you know we all pull ourselves up by the bootstraps we all have equal opportunity well yeah there's a lot of opportunities there but the mindset and that complex trauma that definitely does pass down generationally there's studies that show that that trauma does pass down generationally through our DNA mm -hmm. that doesn't just go away because you know somebody got a, a high paying job or you know somebody made some money and so undoing the psychological trauma of what has happened across multiple generations and then you know within each generation what those struggles look like um, and whether or not those struggles have com compounded those issues or maybe alleviated some of those issues um i like to to really shine a light on that because mm -hmm. you know it's not it's not, you know, everybody shows up at the same place on the same level and has the same opportunity. And, um, and then we look at like the systemic issues and we look at, um, even to this, to this present day, you know, the relationship between black Americans and the financial institution as a whole, banks, um, credit, debt, uh, life insurance, investing, like all of those of things. Well, exactly. there, there's there's an inherent mistrust there yeah. that um that is hard to overcome and you know having having worked on both sides of of banking and um being in the financial services industry like yeah i drank the kool-aid and i'm like oh you got to go out and get a bank account oh you got to go out and get a credit card oh you got to go out and get some life insurance and why don't we have life insurance why do we opt to do the gofundme and the the fish dinners but we have to unpack the complex trauma that's associated with the mistrust that exists in, in those industries. And so um, that's that's why I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the intersection of wealth, race and um, and, and our mental the psychology. So I spent a lot of time uh, talking about that and in the platforms that I'm able to share on um, Forbes being the most recent. I have a column there where I, I, I like to explore that topic in depth and that intersection in depth because it makes people uncomfortable to talk about any one of those items individually, but certainly all of those items intertwined. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're just, there's so much there. There's so much yeah, there to, to unpack. Yeah, it's definitely a lot, bro. And I was going to ask you too, because I, I, one thing that stood out, I'm going to just take a, a slight pivot though, bro, because one thing that stood out to me was your branding, right? So when we first started connecting on LinkedIn and stuff like that, I would see you on there. I remember, I forgot where it was. If it was on TikTok, if it was on LinkedIn. But I saw, I was like the only person with the hat and the hoodie on LinkedIn. And I saw you with a do-rag on, on LinkedIn talking financial literacy. And I was like, this is my fucking guy right here. <laughs> so I'm curious though, when did you start taking that online? And how do you open up yourself as far as branding yourself so you could speak on these publications like Forbes, Business Insider? Because there's not many that are doing this topic. There's only a few like Earn Your Leisure, the Wall Street Trapper. You're in that same vein, bro. So how did you, what was your branding strategy? Um, so when I first started on LinkedIn, it was, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Corporate Kool-Aid. I was very much invested in climbing the ladder. Um, the the Durag era, we can call it, happened after I left my job. So I left my job in May of 2021. 
Um, and that was during the great resignation, right? So during a period where a lot of people were just kind of like either burnt out due to the pandemic or um, they just was like, you know what, there's more to life, right? People are dropping debt left and right due to, you know, COVID and, and other things. Like we need to like really value our time. And um, in 2019 is really when I started publicly building a personal brand. So I published my first book. I started working on publishing um, a second one and delivered a TEDx talk. And so I started to kind of get a taste of what it feels like to build on my own, not attached to an organization. And ultimately that came to clash with the organization I was working for. It's like, well, are you going to do what you do for us? Or are you going to do what you do for you? And it just became a very uncomfortable, very toxic uh, dynamic. So I decided to leave. And um, in doing that, I realized that there was so much about corporate America and what I believed about corporate America that um, had caused me trauma up to and including, you know, how I showed up, uh, whether or not like I had earrings on, whether, you know, how I talked, what I wore, who I talked to. Um, what I was interested in. I mean, you're spending, you know, 40 hours plus of your life every week going into this environment, code switching, being somebody other than who you are um, until you end up becoming that person. And so for me, um, the Durag era was the unraveling. It was how do I decide not only um, who I want to be, but how I want to be, how I want to show up, what does authenticity look like? What language do I want to use? Um, you know, do I want to show up with the do-rag on? Like, do I feel comfortable showing up with a do-rag on? Yeah. Um, you know, how you'd redefine professionalism because all of the knowledge that I've gained, um, all of the things that I've accomplished don't go away because I'm wearing a do-rag. And um, a lot of people make judgments based off of, you know, how you show up, particularly as a black man. And so I wanted to kind of break all of those rules, break all of those barriers and still say like, look, I still got, I still did the TEDx talk, right? Like you could go type my name into Google right now and, and I'm still writing for these publications. And so um, they, were pro they were separate processes, but certainly they intertwined. Um, I started writing for publications, I think in 2019 as well. And maybe it was 2020. And I just kind of like used that as a ladder, right? So I think the first publication I wrote for was DeGrio. Um, I started writing for Entrepreneur, and then um, your know, Entrepreneur was a pretty big publication, so it was easy for me to move into some of the other publications that were smaller. And then um, when I left my job, Business Insider wanted to pick up the story, so they uh, they were very happy for me to tell that story. And so I'm like, all right, cool. Like I have Business Insider as a pretty top tier publication, got a lot of views, got a lot of comments, got a lot of hate mail from people who like, oh, yeah. you know, you left your job. You didn't give a notice, like you're a terrible person. Um, but leveraging, you know, each level of publication was part of a strategy that I had learned through some courses and some programs that I participated in. And then this year, uh, I got business. I mean, business. I got Forbes um, as a contributor, and and really oh. that was all about um, finding my message, honing in on my message, honing in on my niche. Right? Nobody. There are a lot of people talking about financial literacy. Nobody's talking about the intersection of wealth, mental health, and race. And so how do I position my expertise, my experience, my topic, my niche in a way that sounds different, but also comes with like receipts, right? Like I'm, I'm not just somebody rolling out of bed talking about this, right? You mentioned I'm a certified financial education instructor. 
registered financial associate, consultant rather, um, pursuing the AFC, so accredited financial counselor. And I have a decade of of industry experience. Like I've been I've been doing this. And so um, being able to show that resume of credentials, experience, the work. I'm an author of a book that talks about money. I have a podcast that talks about money. Like they were like, okay, like this makes sense. Let's do it. And um, and I hit the ground running. I started writing for, for Forbes in April. April 1st was my first article. I think um, as of today, I am seven or eight articles in. I've been doing roughly an article a week. Mm. And um, making big waves, like you know, people are reaching out to me. And like I've never heard of financial trauma. I've never heard of a financial therapist. Like, how can I learn more? I love your writing style, and I'm like, I've I've been talking about this, but yeah, um, yeah. you know, to yeah. your point, building the brand establishes a little bit more credibility, and certainly gives you a lot more reach. Um, yeah. And it's just it's amazing. It's been an amazing experience, rather, to be able to do it authentically and show up yeah. my authentic right. self. Kudos to you for that, bro. Real I, I, talk. No, nah, that's 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 from that's, the heart, man. I, and I appreciate that, but I gotta, you know, I like, I always like to backtrack. You know what I'm saying? I like to backtrack because <laughs> we can't get away from, we cannot allow ourselves to get away from the fundamentals of what the what the real problem is. So you said to me, yo, I was drinking the Kool Aid, right? So here's the Kool Aid, and I, and I want to see if you if you drinking it or or you put the Kool Aid down, right? <laughs> real, real quick, because this is this is a multi-part, right? So, do you believe, as, as a capitalistic society, which United States is capitalistic society, it is based on the fact that they must have a certain amount of failure to have the rich stay wealthy, right? Yeah. This this system is not designed by nature for people for most people to be wealthy. It is designed by nature to put the wealth in the hands of a few, and and keep the people. Uh, the majority of people impoverished because guess what? The more you're impoverished, the more you need help from the system. And when the system helps you, guess what the system gets to do? It gets to put guidelines on you. It gets to put rules on you. You want these food stamps? Then you can only do this. You can only do that. You got to go here. You got to go here. You can't work them out. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So so do you do you truly... So if you say you're not drinking the Kool-Aid, then to, do you truly believe that the initial problem is the society that we live in in general? Let's start with that. Uh, I think that that is a very complex question. Um, and so there's a couple of things that I want to kind of qualify as we're as, as I'm answering that question. Right. Yeah. So capitalism is the clash between um, independent business ownership and government systems. Right. And so you kind of touched on that. Right. Where if these entrepreneurs like and I mean, these mega entrepreneurs like the J.P. Morgan's of the world, the Rockefellers of the world, um, the Rothschilds of the world are in bed with government and shaping how government policy is created and um, ultimately how it impacts the end user, which is, you know, your everyday person, then yes, there is going to be a, a kind of a manufactured dependency that's created. And in that, you know, there's always going to be people dependent on a system. I.e. the prison system. That's exactly why the, how the prison system was developed. And, and it is what it is now. It's a private institution. It's a private yep. institution that rich people buy into and you get free free labor, yep. like almost, almost slave labor, which technically the Rockefellers and not the Rockefellers, but the people that help shape and build this country. That's how you got rich. You, yep. you, you, you have free labor. Yeah, he's potting right now, and they're gonna get a shadow ban. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, <laughs> first of all, first of all, first of all, hold on, 
Rock, Rock, Rockham, listen, just so you know, right, I, I didn't put on my OTB merch today. I put on the green, right? Because you, you said you were going to come talk about money. It was only right I had to wear the money green. I had to wear the money green glasses. So we're going to talk about money. I got to put on green. But if we're going to talk it, we got to talk it for real. Yeah, no, no, no. We got to talk it for real. We got to talk it for real. Yeah. But what, you know, so my, my kind of apprehension, if you will, and I think the very, very simple answer to your question is that, yes, I think that there's an issue with the society that we live in. My apprehension with throwing my um, full support behind that statement is that in a way it kind of discourages like that free market entrepreneurship. Right. And so um, I, I I went viral on Twitter uh, last year, I think it was because I had shared a tweet that said Malcolm X was absolutely a capitalist. That tweet got close to a million, I think, or maybe two million impressions. Wow. And people were upset. People wow. were very upset with me, like, how could you say this? You know, and throwing quotes at me from Malcolm X about how capitalism is such a damaging system and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I didn't even bother arguing because at that point it was just it was too much. Like it was overwhelming. My phone was blowing up. But I I shared that and and a very provocative approach to um, teaching, but I never got around to being able to teach. And then I'll break down, you know, in this conversation that the money that, that Malcolm X needed to survive um, wasn't just coming out of thin air, right? Like there had to have been entrepreneurship or um, revenue generating, revenue generation through independent businesses. Malcolm X was very much a supporter of Black entrepreneurship through his affiliation with the Nation of Islam um, and then, you know, maybe even afterwards. But what I think is really the most interesting thing about um, the way that people in droves came to attack me based over that statement was that um, we have a tendency to deify our leaders. And Malcolm X, I believe he died when he was, when he was murdered when he was 39, 38, 39 years old. I'm th I just turned 33 on Monday. Right. And so when I think about where I am in terms of the development of thoughts and beliefs that I have today um, and how recent some of those developments are based off of the different levels of exposure that I've had to um, to poverty, to wealth, to corporate America, to anti corporate America, right, entrepreneurship. He was still developing very much as a person. And uh, I think that it would have been very interesting to see how his thoughts and beliefs would have changed should he have been allowed to live longer. And so, um, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that there is a system outside of capitalism that um, exists that would be of the most benefit to the most people. And that's why I think um, I do lean towards the encouragement of entrepreneurship. Um, and if not entrepreneurship, certainly ownership in some capacity, whether that looks yeah. like land, whether that looks like assets. Yeah. Um, and, and in that process, you know, yes, there are going to be people that have to give and pay and there are going to be people on a receiving end. But if we can encourage more people to embrace um, concepts and principles that speak to owning some, excuse me, owning something or um, or owning something and creating a business where they can generate revenue for the benefit of um, their communities. And we can also encourage um, like a group economics through that process. Then I think that 
capitalism in a form can work. Um, and, 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 you know, this, the system that exists today is so, um, bundled, right? Like when we look at, uh, lobbyists and the role that they play in ultimately legislation, right? Um, I think the, one of the big conversations right now is around gun control and you have, you know, the NRA not lobbyists who are, you know, hugely active and hugely funding, um, you know, the, the Republican party or the conservative parties, then they're going to influence whether or not guns are allowed or taken off the streets. And that's just one example of, I mean, so many different organizations or groups that are paying money into their own interest. And so mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, it, it really is a difficult wait, question to answer. Wait, wait before you that's go right. far, that's not wrong, though. I'm not angry at that. You, you, I'm glad you said that. I'm not angry at that. What are you not angry at specifically? At, at what you just, no, no, what you just said about you, like, if I was a, you know, we have a company, so we have OTB Digital, right? Let's say we grow the company to a certain level. If there's something that we feel like a law or some legislation that, that would come out that would help digital marketing, right? Or that would help um, branding for computers or anything Any in our interest. interest, right? Anything yep. in our interest, like Jared said, of course we're going to help push that or we would want to push that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this. If you, if you, want, some, if you want somebody to be able to begin to understand something, then you teach it to them at the most fundamental levels, right? Like Mayor de Blasio, um, you know, the, and I think, I think right before him, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the mayor right before him, um, Bloomberg. I think he started, we had, so I went to school for pre-K, right? Pre-K, which was like uh, four instead of five, right? Now I think they have pre-K at like three, right? They have yeah. pre-K at like universal three, right? Pre -K, okay, yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Universal yeah. pre-K. So let's just start with that, right? So what you're saying is, what you're saying is you want to start education earlier, right? So I'm going to say I agree to that because if you look at one of the the, um, the countries that's beating us out education-wise, China, their school system and our school system completely different. But watch this. What I'm saying is it's not a level playing field, right? And I'm not saying it, it's, it's going to be fair, but it's a landslide. It's a landslide. And you being a financial guy, let me throw it to you. When I went to school, there was two alphabets on the board. There was the print alphabet and it was cursive alphabet above that. I got two boys. I got two boys. My youngest son will be 15 years old and my oldest son will be 22. And I had to teach them cursive handwriting. Now you working in the bank. I'm going to ask you this because I know you already know it's coming. When you, when you write a check or you receive a check on the back of it, what does that check say? What, what, what words do the, do the check say? Endorse. Endorse. Or, uh, thank, you, th thank you very much, sir. Endorse, right? <clears throat> Endorse. That means a script handwriting, cursive handwriting signature, not print handwriting. I got guys that I work with that make $150,000, $200,000 and have to walk around with an illiteracy card. Illiteracy card to say I am legally illiterate to, for the bank to allow them to put an X on that check and cash it. So this, this is what I'm talking about, right? Mm. So once again, right? Once again, right? You're starting us off learning education. Even to this day, money is still not all electronic. You know how many people still use paper checks? But you don't teach cursive handwriting in school. Now, you got, gen you got gender neutral bathrooms and him, her, she, her. And you got all these other topics that you're teaching. But the most basic thing when it comes to money and finances, you're not teaching it. And I'm going to say, why? All you guys are super smart that run these organizations, PhDs and doctorates. You're telling me that you... 
It was already in place. Why did you take it out? You took it out because that's the way the system is designed. So if you don't teach us properly, then we make more mistakes. The financial institutions that lend us this money, because we don't have it to lend to each other, right? We don't have it to lend to each other that gave you that student loan, that gave you that credit card. They get to do the terms and the conditions or whatever the case may be. And when you default, they technically own you, right? Look at what you just said. For one little mistake as being 120 days late on a payment for your credit card, that was on your credit for seven years. But they didn't take seven years to teach you about it before they gave it to you. Before yeah, they no. gave it to you. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't disagree with you, but I think you, using the example that that you use, right, for your um, for your organization and lobbying, you talked about, yeah, I will put money behind um, legislation that benefits me, but there's not there's not ever going to be a situation where you put money towards benefiting you that somebody else is not going to not be beneficial, not be benefiting. True. So when we look at, um, I, I, I think that you know we should be careful, right, in terms of saying like you know whether or not we support it, and that's why I answered the question the way that I did because it makes sense, right? If if it's going to put more money in my pocket, if it's going to increase the security that I feel for my family, for my community, if it's going to increase the literacy and the education that I feel for my community and for my um, family, certainly it makes sense. But when you look at the other side of that, um, th there is somebody who who's going to feel slighted. There's somebody who's going to feel disadvantaged. And so money um, is it, so much more complex than I think we give credit for because money represents um, our beliefs, our psychology. It represents power. It represents, um, are you able to be you? Are you able to, um, are you able to, eat? I mean, beyond just, are you able to eat and clothe yourself and, 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 and house yourself? But like, like you talk about the private prison system. I mean, there's so many things that we touched on that all connect back to money um, and decisions that are made based off of who is controlling the flow of money and who is the recipient of that money. So, um, so we're talking at a whole bunch of different levels and I, 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 I'm cool with it. I'm, I'm certainly, I'm keeping up, but I think that's important to kind of qualify too, like these different levels as we're having these conversations, we're talking about capitalism as a system is touching so many more people than personal finance, we're talking about, you know, whether or not somebody has the ability to sign the back of a check or recognize that they should sign the back of a check. Um, and then, you know, what that looks like in terms of illiteracy, what that looks like in terms of opening yourself up to fraud, what that looks like in terms of um, so many things that impact the individual versus, you know, a collective of people. Yeah, right. That makes right. sense. Yeah. But the reason that I keep taking it back the reason that if you think about everything that I said, I keep taking it back to school. I keep taking it back to school because before you can become that empowered adult, you're that unknowing child. You see how that works again? Yeah, yeah, before yeah. you can become that unpowered adult that was able to be to get that job at the bank, you was that child sitting in that classroom, sitting Absolutely. in that classroom. Right. And eventually, as you climb the ladder, guess what happens? There's more children sitting in that classroom, sitting in that classroom, sitting in that classroom that end up becoming these adults that end up running these organizations. Doesn't matter what organization, eventually us as human beings, we die and you must pass it on to somebody else. So what I'm saying is, you're not even preparing the masses properly to take over. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. That right. The, 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 the system right. is, is certainly right. not designed to 
but, so but two is people it, would be independent. <laughs> but is it, is, it, but is, is it up to them at this point? When you become, when you're the unknowingly, the child, the unknowing child, right? You become the adult. Is there excuse in today's era with the access to information that we have today? And that's a real question. Do you think I, like somebody not knowing cursive right now, you go to YouTube and build a fucking bomb. You mean to tell me you can't teach yourself some cursive? Yeah, I, um, I don't have any kind of like, uh, feelings of loyalty or disloyalty to cursive writing i mean i know yeah. how to write in script certainly but for sure, for sure. that's you know it, it is what it is yeah. but I will, i'll throw this question back at you right so you're talking mm -hmm. about uh preschool you're talking about elementary school middle school high school um you know in the public capacity what if um growing up where we grew up financial literacy was taught in the classrooms but you still had to go home to poverty and 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 I, I'm speaking from from experience. So when I was in the seventh grade, I was introduced to the stock market. Uh, we were given newspapers. We went, you know, this is back when you know you didn't have, you know, Robinhood and all these other apps. You went to the newspaper. You went to the back, and you looked at the ticker symbols. You learned what those ticker symbols were. You looked at the high, the low, et cetera, et cetera. We played this game where we were given a imaginary amount of money and we were told buy stocks you know whatever however many stocks we could buy with the imaginary amount of money and whoever had the um the highest portfolio at the end of the game won so i was introduced to the stock market in the seventh grade i don't remember how old i was what is that like 14 15 yeah roughly, um roughly. Mm -hmm. but i didn't start investing in the stock market until i was in my 20s no, no, seventh grade is younger than that. It's like 13 because normally high school starts 14, ninth grade. Right, 14. right, right, yeah, so right. You were like 12. You were 12. like 12. Yeah, you were like so, 12. Yeah. So, so, so I didn't start investing in the stock market until I was in my 20s, um, until I was in my mid-20s. And I remember, and I've, I've used this example quite a lot in, in some of the sharing that I've done around this topic of, you know, when is it appropriate to introduce financial literacy to children and does it make a difference? Um, and I've shared that, you know, because I was in a situation where survival was the priority, um, the stock market was the furthest thing from, I mean, you talked about it earlier. You said, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get to tomorrow. And so the key to success in the stock market is time, the time value of money. The earlier you start, the longer you hold, ultimately, the more wealthy you become. Um, very, very overly simplified, but that's the gist of it, right? The longer you hold, the more wealthy you become. But if you are in a position where you can't even save, or you can't even think to save, then you certainly can't think to invest. And I remember the thought around buying stocks, particularly within you know our community, was that's that's for white people. That's not a black people thing. And so the associations that existed with I guess you could consider investing in the stock market as a part of financial literacy was that that's not for us or that's not for me. And so, again, going back to the question that I'm asking you, given the environment that we grew up in, if financial literacy or financial education was a part of the curriculum, would it have made a difference in the way that we see or um, believed or interacted with money? within our households because we were experiencing survival. Absolutely. It, it, would, it, would, it would change everything. And I'll give you the best example in the world. And Jared, 
you know this story, and, and Jared's going to laugh when I tell this story because I always tell this story, right? Remember, you spend a certain amount of time at school. When you come home from school, you either go upstairs, do your homework or whatever, but you know where you, you, know where you spend a lot uh, more of your time? In the streets, outside. Outside, right? Now, most of us come from broken families. Not Jared. Jared's mom and pop been together, but like guys like me, you know, you come from a single parent household. There is no father figure to teach you these fundamental things. So guess where you learn it from? You learn it from the streets. You learn it from somebody that you finally look at and say, I admire him for whatever reason. And then you look at what he's doing mixed with the intelligence that you have and you go from there, right? So now, in our neighborhood in the Bronx, the only people that wasn't in poverty was the drug dealers, right? The drug right. dealers. And because the drug dealers came before us and went through the same exact system that we went through, the moment they got money, the first thing they did was get fresh. Clothes, cars, jewelry, in abundance, right? Now, now that they have these things, the younger guys like me coming up that have no financial literacy at all, right? What do I see? I see I'm broke, but clearly you not broke. You not broke, right? Because you got, you got the girls, you got the clothes, you got the rope chains and all this, right? Now, when I get money, what do you think I'm going to emulate? Because I don't have any financial literacy saying the car is good, but it's a depreciating asset. See, I learned that later. You understand what I'm saying? I, I don't care about stocks. I'm, I only care about what I see because in my eyes, they're surviving. He's not, he's not begging for food. He, he knows where his next meal is coming from. He's going to eat shrimps and he's going to City Island every other day, right? Yeah. So one of the guys that influenced me most, right? I was, let me tell you this, very clear. I was just insane as a child. I was the child that they put a bet on that said I wouldn't live to see 18. Am I lying, Jared? It's a fact, though. The whole fact hood, though. the whole hood had a bet on me. As wild as I was, that I would not live to see 18. One of the people, one of the most influential people that saved my life was one of Jared's cousins, right? My man Gino. My man Gino. I used to go to the center and Gino was fresh. And Gino had smelled good. But you know what Gino had too? He had that Audi 5000, baby. He had that <laughs> Audi 5000 with the battery in the back seat. That, again, we got skateboards and, and we, we, you know, bicycles. Nobody in my family at that time had a car. And you understand what I'm saying? A luxury car, something like that. So when I seen that, I'm like, oh, that, that, that clearly is what the definition of success is. You understand what I'm saying? So as I started to get money, because I don't know what financial literacy is, my number one goal is I want to be like Gino. I want to be like Gino. Fast forward 20 years, I love you, Gino. I bought the Audi A8. <laughs> I, had I, was I had to have it. I, I'm just showing you, Rakim. Like, and I was financially, you know, stable at the time. But, but look at how I brought it full circle. Like, I just had to have it. Like, Gino had it. It was a status symbol. I had to go get the Audi A8. I had to have it. You know, they don't make 5,000s no more, so I had to get whatever was closest to it. But I'm just saying, if I would have learned earlier, Financial literacy. You, you're, you're absolutely right. It impacts every decision that I make. You're absolutely right. It changes my whole mindset. I'm also a United States veteran. I did five years Marine Corps. I did five years Marine Corps. I didn't even go to college. I got a 1460 on my SAT. I'm all state in three sports and never went to college right off the bat because I knew mentally I would not survive in college. I was hustling. I knew I was going to go to college, have 15 babies. You know what I'm saying? I'm going down there with money. I'm going down there with money, baby. Jewelry. I got diamonds and fangs and Rolex links. I'm going down there. I was going to HBCU, my bro. I'm going to have 15 babies. What's wrong with this guy? I'm just saying, well, I want to show you something, right? Because you because you talked on this before, and, and I was the exact opposite because it happened in the reverse um, way for me. If you know anything about the military, you know after two years being invested, you get what's called the VA, the, the VA loan. Guaranteed loan to buy yourself a house. So after I came back after doing my tour and I came back in 2001, I was 21. 
had my own apartment, I was a brand new father, and I had the money right then and there, right then and there to go buy a house, right, or a condo, and become a homeowner at 21. I came home with a, um, it was 2001, I had the, the last Trans Am they made, the 2002, remember Jared, the white drop top, I had the last Trans Am they made, and the very thing I, I did with the next $30,000, $40,000 I got, I went and bought the Denali, because the Cadillac truck, because the Cadillac truck didn't come in white. I'm, you understand? And because I had, too, I had too many talks with too many people that scared me from being a homeowner. Everybody that I spoke to that had a house lost their house. And it wasn't family because I'm the first homeowner in like three or four generations in my family. But everybody that I spoke to that had a house gave me a horror story. It's too much work. If you fall behind in your mortgage, they're going to take it. When You didn't explain to me mortgages like rent. It's three months anyway before they start kicking you. That's anyway. But I'm just showing you like, so it took me, I, bu I built my house at 30. At 30, and now I've had my house 13 years, so now it's a quarter paid for. But if I'd have built my house at 20, my house would be half, halfway paid, uh, three quarters paid for. I'd be two thirds through the loan already. 30 year loan, 20 years, I'd be two thirds through the loan already. But I wasted 10 years, mm. 10 years when I had the money right there in my hand because I didn't have the financial literacy or the, the supporting cast to say to me, nah, brother, they're wrong. Let me teach you this the right way. So that so it absolutely makes a difference because I'm, I'm a living testament to say I lost at least ten years behind illiteracy. But I think what you what you said what you just said is super important. You said you didn't have the financial literacy or the supporting cast. So the supporting cast is separate than financial literacy. Right. As right. I'm listening to you tell your story too, I'm also um, compelled to ask, well, you know, what is your understanding of the term financial literacy? Right. Because as it exists today. Um, and the way that curriculums are built. And remember, I'm a certified financial education instructor. We're going to go and we're going to teach you about budgeting. We're going to teach you about saving. We're going to teach you about building credit. Um, maybe we'll teach you about banking systems, right? Opening a bank account, making deposits, whatever. Um, might touch on homeownership. May not get into the details of the programs associated with becoming a homeowner, right? So that's your FHA, your conventional, and um, your VA loans. And there are other programs out there, too. But when you're talking about what you missed out on um, and for a lack of knowledge, um, certainly it can financial literacy can have contributed to that. But you also talked about um, proximity, right? Proximity to an individual who, whose success maybe you wanted to emulate it. Um, you talked about uh, status and, um, and you know, this is really my playground, right? We talk about right. the psychology of money. Um, there's work done by a financial psychologist by the name of Dr. Brad Klontz. He um, came, up, came up with this phrase or this process called the, uh, the money scripts. And money scripts are broken down into four main types, right? There's money avoidance, there's money worship, there's money vigilance, and there's um, money status, and each one of these scripts are characterized by, um, you know, different things, right? So money avoidance is like the belief in, you know, money is the root of all evil. And so if I have money or if somebody else has money, like they must have did something bad to get it. And now I have money, so I have to get rid of it. Or I, I completely, you know, self-sabotage opportunities to make money or to keep the money that I have. Money worship is characterized by this belief that um, the more money that I, or if I had, if I only had this much money, that it would solve all my problems, right? If I only had $100,000, if I only had a million dollars, it would solve all my problems. Money um, status is characterized by not necessarily 
how much money you make, but how you can buy things to demonstrate status to other people. So it's not something that fulfills you internally. You gain the fulfillment by being able to stunt on somebody else, right? Um, and then money vigilance is like this extreme worry that if you deviate from this very rigid plan, that all the money is going to be taken away from you, right? And so if you're not budgeting down to the penny, if you're not checking your bank account every day, if you're not, um, you know, looking at your statements, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I'm listening to you, um, and when I listen to other people, I play like this game and I'm like, what money script is, is showing here? And um, we're talking about the Audi, right? I'm like, that's money status. Like that, that's, that's, what, that's what my brand is doing. That's money status, right? Like absolutely. you gotta have the thing to show. So what I'm describing to you, right? And, and breaking that all down is that those money scripts are not a part of a financial literacy curriculum. That's pure financial psychology. And financial psychology and financial therapy are newer fields, um, they're emerging fields. And so where I show up in this equation um, and why I do the work that I do is because traditional financial literacy stops at the math. The one plus one equals two. This is how you establish a budget. This is how you build credit. This is how credit cards work because even though, and we talked about student loans, so I'm going to go back to that. Even though I had to sit down and take an entrance and exit interview for the student loan when I was signing the paper, and I had to sit at a computer for 30 minutes and scroll through the pages and pages and pages that talks about, you know, this is how you, have, this is how much you have to pay. This is when you have to pay. This is why you have to pay. This is how much money you're going to get. This is the interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. This is the process if the loan is transferred. Who's going to be the co-owner or the co-signer on your loan for you? I'm, my eyes are glazed over as I'm scrolling through that. Financial literacy maybe would have told me what the interest rate looked like. Financial literacy maybe would have told me that I needed to pay it. But the reality of the situation is the reason why that loan went 120 days delinquent was because even though I was getting the letters in the mail, I didn't have the money to pay it. And right. so that's not financial literacy. That's me not having enough money to pay the loan. But, and but the I same thing could but, be applied to credit though. card. But I disagree because financial literacy also educates you knowing when to take out a loan versus your income and, and, and your income to debt ratio anyway. Not, not necessarily. I, I would, not I would necessarily. never I would never take out a card. I would never take out once I learn money, I would never take out a card knowing that my interest rate is a certain amount and at minimum my payback would be a certain amount if I was unemployed. That that just that, you understand that, 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 in. That, I'm not gonna say that that's not true because you're saying that you would never. But I know for a fact that there are people who would still make that decision, regardless of having that information. I know that for a fact. Right, but I'm saying and a lot of the decisions that people make financially yeah. are decisions that they make because they feel like they have to make that decision out of survival. And so it's not a situation of I know better, so I'm gonna do better. It's a situation of I know better and I'm going to feel really shitty about making this decision, but I need to make it to tomorrow. So I'm going to do what I have to do okay. because the same is true as like, you know, we talked about Renner Center earlier. We, yeah. talk, we didn't talk about payday loans, but pay, I mean, Renner Center is just kind of like a spinoff of the payday loan system, right? right. Yeah, they got the apps um, for that or, now. Or, or, or even like, you know, loan sharks, like, you know, in the time of loan sharks, people knew like, if I didn't have the money to pay this loan shark back, my knees is getting knocked out. I'm going to lose an arm. I'm going to lose some teeth. Like, but people still took that gamble. People still took that risk because they had to or they felt like they had to in that moment. And so the way and I think the statistic is something like 80 percent of the decisions that we make financially 
come from how we feel about money, come from our financial psychology, come from the emotional side of money. And so when we talk about financial literacy, um, when I talk about financial literacy, I'm very careful to make the separation between, again, the math of, of it all and saying, yes, I understand what an interest rate is. And I understand that if I don't pay this on time, I'm going to be paying this in interest. But what, because at the same time, so to go back to the student loan situation, I've grown up in, like I told you guys, I grew up in Mount Vernon, went to Mount Vernon High School as I'm getting ready to graduate Mount Vernon High School. And, you know, my neither of my parents at the time had degrees. I'm like, okay, I need to get to school. I don't have money to get to school. Everybody is in my ear telling me, well, everybody takes out student loans. To me, it already didn't make sense for me to take out this loan because I'm like, how am I going to be able to pay this back? I'm going to have to go into a field that's going to make a lot of money, hopefully, so that I can afford to pay back this student loan. But I was reassured constantly by people who are in positions of authority, by people who were in positions of leadership. Everybody takes out student loans. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And I'm not going to say that taking out a student loan was one of the worst decisions in my life, but it was an informed decision based off of somebody else informing me that it was okay to make this decision because everybody else did it. And so you're talking about the logical approach to money, which makes sense and sounds like you're a logical person, right? I would never do that because I understand that this is the consequence. But the emotional or the illog uh, uh, illogical approach to uh, or rather the illogical pressures associated with making decisions financially is a very real thing. And so, like I said, I'm not going to say that you're not telling me the truth, but not everybody is going to have, have the same resolve in saying, I'm just going to look at this from a purely logical perspective as you are. Because the people who took out student loans so that not only they could afford room, board, and books, but so that they could afford food, so they could afford buying a car, so that they could furnish their dorm. And I got a, a very small refund check out of my student loans at the end of every semester, but that refund check didn't even allow for me to cover the cost of purchasing books, right? Like maybe $200, which was like the cost of, you know, half the cost of one book. And so I just used that that $200 to, to buy food. Um, I was in college, and so we talk about me not finishing college. I went to St. Peter's, it was St. Peter's College, now St. Peter's University in Jersey City. For my freshman year, um, I stayed on campus. I had the meal plan. I took out student loan. I did not have any money to furnish my dorm. I did not have any money to buy food. Um, I only had the meal plan. There were many days that I went hungry at night um, because I didn't need to buy food. There were many days that I sat, I experienced heartburn for the first time in college, that I sat in my bed awake feeling this heartburn because I didn't have any Tums. And I'm like, oh my God, what the hell is going on here? Um, I struggled my freshman year of college. I didn't have the money to buy books. I had to have a teacher give me a previous edition of a biology textbook to borrow so that I could get a C in her class. I had a teacher kick me out of the class to go to the, um, to go to the office to make photocopies that cost 10 cents per copy. So I had to find somebody to borrow, to lend me the money to put the coins in the machine to make these copies to go to the class for the teacher to have moved on to the next section and not be worried about what it is that I just spent all the time trying to make copies on. And so we talk about financial trauma um, and we talk about those decisions. Like if you're, if, if you're in that situation, some people are gonna make that hard decision because they believe in what is at the end of 
the, the light that is at the end of the tunnel, even if they don't know how they're going to get there. And despite making those sacrifices, despite feeling um, or experiencing those traumas, I didn't, even, I didn't even graduate from St. Peter's. I did one year. I transferred out. I went to WCC, Westchester Community College, for another year. I transferred out. I moved to Texas. I came back to Connecticut. I transferred out. I finished my associate's degree here in Connecticut. But by that time, I was making money. And I said, well, I'm making money. And I'm making more money than some of the peers that I graduated with who have a four-year degree. I'm straight. I'm not getting ready to go back to school. I'm not getting ready to take out more loans. And so I was traumatized from that situation and incentivized by the money that I was making in banking to just keep doing what I was doing. And so I asked that question because I wanted to see how you were going to re respond. Um, but, I, but I also asked that question because a lot of the positions that I take on this topic are based off of my lived experience validated by the education that I have and the credentials that I carry. And so when I talk about financial psychology, financial therapy, and financial trauma through the lens of the Black experience as a fraction of a larger generational trauma, I'm the embodiment of that. It's not theory by any means for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people are human beings, right? You can't expect a person to go through something, especially like you said, a traumatic experience, and not be affected by it, right? The word right. life is learned intelligence from experience. If you put somebody through something, it has to affect them, either negatively or positively, or sometimes both. Because you can have a negative effect that ends up turning into a positive later because you use that as a strength to springboard you. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, in the very most simplistic way, is everybody always teaches practice every day. Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect if you work at it. I don't know nobody that sends a different message, right? Any successful person, I, I get up, I do the work. I get up, I do the work. I get up, I do this. So if you keep preaching practice is perfect, practice is perfect, work on your craft every day, that's why I keep taking it back to school and saying, then why aren't they changing the initial system of what the craft is to produce a better educated, higher level person sooner, sooner, so that when we get to these positions, 14, able to work, we understand money and we don't and we don't go to work, get this money and spend it and blow it. Or when we go to college, yeah. guess what? I've been saving since 14 now. Right. Regardless of what my parents were financially able to do for me. Now I've been saving since 14 because I've legally had a job right now. I might not have to take out as many student loans because now I got a little bit of money. So that's yeah. all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. I'm saying it's cause and effect. And I do believe wholeheartedly that if you start early and teach somebody something that they can build a foundation on, it, it's impossible for them. And, I, and I'm not saying everybody. I'm just talking in a general sense of the word for society not to elevate itself because of that. Yeah. But the thing is, our losses are profitable until then. It's never going to change. That's the Fendi fact of it. You know what I'm saying? Unfortunately, and we know that. And that's why it, these conversations are important to have you on, Rakim. So us to have these conversations in a forum like this to really preach and give the knowledge that y'all went through that door. That door, you know, was hot as hell in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't go through that. Don't do this. And that's what we need in order to keep going, man. So I like, I, I yeah. definitely appreciate you, bro. We went over yeah. an hour and 20. This was it's a powerful right. ass conversation. It's all right. Bro. But look, but before Real we shit. go, look, you see, you know why Jared, you know why Jared likes to give those flowers? Because what you don't realize is you could inspire the next Rakim. This is what we're talking about now. You see, he gave you these flowers. 
not, you know, because he wants to show your accomplishments and show that you don't have to have the Audi 5000. You don't have to have the BMW. You don't have to have the big change. You could be an educated brother that writes for Forbes magazine and still be successful. You understand? He's changing. You, you're showing that you can change the narrative of what success is. So now the younger you that's looking can be inspired by a different version of a black and brown brother who's successful. And now, yes, by the time they're 21, they're like, no, I'm going to get a condo. You're crazy. I'm, and you can inspire the next entrepreneur because now they believe right. it's possible because you're showing them the difference. That's all I wanted to say, baby. I'm potting. I'm potting. He's potting today. I'm potting, baby. <laughs> yeah, but for everybody on the check-in, man, I want to say thank you again for the check-in, man. This was a real-ass conversation, Rakim, my brother. This is long overdue, man. You're going to be our resident more than a title financial expert. Yeah. So when some shit pops off, man, yeah. no, you expect the call from us. Bring me back. Wait, wait, Rakim, before you leave, me and Jared, you know, I'm going to bring him in on it. Even if he don't want to come in on it, me and you could do something. I want to open up the world's largest golf course. No, a go-kart course, right? Like, I want to bring Super Mario Kart. <laughs> To real life, I want to throw mushrooms at motherfuckers and banana peels and have motherfuckers <laughs> crash on the wall. Let's sit down and let's talk if that's psychology. If the psychology of it is just my ego that I want to open up this big park because I'm a kid at heart and I didn't get to fuck around as a kid, or if this is feasible business wise and we can just let off some steam. You know, we gotta come up with a business plan. <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. Kidding me or what? This guy. I appreciate you. No, no, for real, I appreciate you coming through, bro. I learned a lot from you. Um, I know, and, and, and like, you know, me and Jared was talking yesterday, man, we was excited to have you on here because even you bringing up the whole word therapy, man, therapy in the black and brown community is taboo therapy of any kind of any kind, financial, mental, emotional relationship. When you say that to a black and brown person, like therapy, they automatically shut down. They automatically yeah. shut down. But but the way you broke it down, I think it's absolutely needed, but it won't happen unless we have these type of conversations. Absolutely. And we bring it to the masses and show them that it's a benefit to having these type of conversations. Yeah, and, yeah and sh absolutely. Shout out to Roy that's in the chat. He said, good chat, fellas. Keep the conversation yeah. going. There's a lot of people suffering because they don't understand their finances. Even right. something like credit card interest rate, people don't know how it works. Yeah, this it is. is. powerful. Yeah. Appreciate yeah, you, Roy. Yeah, Thanks for the question, baby. Yeah, thank you, Roy. Yes, sir. But you already know, broski. Thank you for everybody on checking. Rakim, thank you. My brother it was an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. You know, you got to invite any other time. And we're going to see you guys next week. We got we got two bangers coming up. We got Emmanuel Nunn from the NFL, and we got David Shan's episode. It's going to be crazy. Banana. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> so you already know. We see you guys next week. Have a great weekend, y'all. And thanks again for tuning in to more than the title. We see you all one